This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, are Trump's financial and tax crimes more likely to bring him down than Russiagate? David K. Johnston, the Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, knows more about the history of Trump's finances and taxes than just about anyone except for Michael Cohen. We'll speak with David later in the show. First up, a peace treaty for Korea and a Nobel Prize for Trump. Historian Bruce Cummings will explain everything. Trump Watch starts right now. The news from Korea. On Sunday, the South Korean government said that North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, said he would abandon his nuclear weapons if the United States agreed to formally end the Korean War and promise not to invade his country. For comment, we turn to Bruce Cummings. He's written many books, including The Korean War, A History, and North Korea, Another Country. He writes for The Guardian, The London Review of Books, and The Nation, and he teaches at the University of Chicago. Bruce Cummings, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's start with a little history. Why did North Korea develop nuclear weapons? Well, the U.S. put nuclear weapons into South Korea in 1958. Uh, Honest John missiles. Uh, a couple of years later, nuclear landmines uh, that weigh about 60 pounds and can actually be put in a Jeep and carried around, uh, deposited north of Seoul, that kind of thing. And so I think ever since the U.S. Uh, put hundreds of nuclear weapons into South Korea, the North Koreans have tried to come up with a, a deterrent. Uh, for decades, they've built underground. So they have about 15,000 facilities. Uh, almost their entire military is underground in caves, in mountains. Uh, it was their only recourse since they didn't have nuclear weapons. Uh, George H.W. Bush removed all battlefield nuclear weapons uh, from around the world in 1991, including Korea. But every president uh, kind of prides themselves on sending B-1 nuclear-capable bombers along the Korean coast. Obama did it many times. Trump has done it. And uh, Trident submarines are also... Uh, they're basically... Uh, uh, killing machines that could wipe out North Korea in a few hours uh, with their nuclear weapons. So the North has always been trying to get a deterrent, and it it finally succeeded, uh, busting off an atomic bomb in 2006, a very small one, and then uh, doing a number of other tests. And, and last September, uh, they detonated what uh, seems to have been a hydrogen bomb uh, way much larger than the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs. And <clears throat> a little more history. Why was there a war in Korea in the early 50s? What was the Korean War about, briefly? Briefly. Well, the Korean War is, is uh, one of the most vexed in, in our history in that if you look at uh, high school and college textbooks, it's, they just run it as, Stalin telling Kim Il-sung to uh, invade in 1950. Uh, but the war had origins going back into the 1930s when Korea was a colony of Japan. And Kim Il-sung and his friends who set up the North Korean government in 1948 uh, fought the Japanese for a decade uh, as guerrillas in, in the 
the most uh, forbidding circumstances imaginable in Manchuria, where winter temperatures get down to 40 below zero. And the Japanese, uh, after their fashion, uh, found Koreans to chase down Kim Il-sung. Allegedly, they killed his first wife. Uh, and that set up a, a terrible uh, nationalist dynamic in Korea after the Japanese left, whereby uh, you had the Soviet-supported regime in the north made up of former guerrillas uh, and the American-supported south with the entire uh, army high staff or command uh, being people who fought with the Japanese. Uh, Americans never understood this dynamic. Uh, they posted the very man who tried to kill Kim Il-sung in the 1930s to command the 38th parallel uh, in the summer of 1949. So it, it was fundamentally a civil war, but because of the it came at the height of the Cold War. It generally was never seen, uh, at least not uh, by most Americans, as a, a war similar to the Vietnam War. But it it was a very similar war, uh, and it it demonstrates how easy it is to get into a war. Uh, Truman, President Truman, thought it would be over very over very quickly when he sent American troops in in June 1950. And here we are today with uh, just an armistice holding the peace 65 years after the war, uh, the hot war ended. So what you're saying is that Julius and Ethel Rosenberg did not cause the Korean War by giving the Soviets the secret of the A-bomb, which was what was said in their sentencing. Uh, yeah, that's an absurdity, but... The Rosenberg case is very important for understanding the Korean War because they were indicted right about the time it began in 1950, and they were executed uh, right about the time the war ended in 1953. Uh, and as a result, repression in the U.S. was terrible. The war was fought under censorship after the first a few months, uh, and you literally could go to jail for saying the wrong thing about the Korean War. Uh, even the New York Times, a uh, allegedly liberal newspaper, condemned uh, the first protests that emerged uh, against the Korean War. So it it's sometimes called the Forgotten War, but it, it really was a never-known war for most uh, Americans who lived through it on the home front. And let me add, just speaking as an American historian, the evidence is that Julius Rosenberg was a spy, but he did not give the secret of the A-bomb to the Soviets. Ethel was framed by the FBI in an effort to uh, pressure Julius, and her execution is uh, one of the uh, great uh, miscarriages of justice in American history. So moving, right. moving right along to the present, um, a little more background. How would you describe the regime in North Korea today? What's life like in the North for ordinary Koreans? Uh, well, it's a lot better than it was 20 years ago when they had a famine uh, caused by about 40% of their arable land being uh, flooded uh, in kind of a tsunami, really, of, uh, of rain. Uh, maybe 600 to 700,000 people died uh, our papers always say it was two million, but careful demographic studies have shown it was pretty awful, but not two million. Uh, and they were really the economy fundamentally collapsed in the 1990s. 
their industries weren't working, their energy regime uh, was gone, uh, and then came the floods and, and the famine. Uh, now their economy is actually uh, good by North Korean standards. It grew about 4% last year. But Kim Jong-un uh, has uh, really tried to begin creating a, a middle class, at least in the urban areas, and especially Pyongyang. So there are, there are many markets now. People uh, dress in, in a great variety of clothing, unlike the old proletarian clothing. Uh, a lot of people have private cars now. Uh, and I was supposed to go to Pyongyang last September for uh, a visit. I haven't been there for many years, but I was prevented by President Trump's uh, embargo of all American travel to North Korea. Uh, however, a friend of mine went uh, last summer and said he was just flabbergasted by the changes in uh, in Pyongyang, uh, so much new building and new construction. And the South Korean President uh, Moon, his overall scheme for North Korea is to uh, reconcile with it, uh, not unify with it, but proceed with reconciliation and sort of rebuild the North Korean economy uh, road by road, uh, bridge by bridge, uh, business by business. That That's really what's uh, behind this, and it's what's attracting uh, Kim Jong-un. So the uh, it's not just the Trump administration that <clears throat> that's deeply skeptical about North Korean promises. The mainstream media uh, has been saying, you know, don't don't trust uh, trust King Jong Un. Uh, and when Secretary of State Rex Tillerson visited Seoul a year ago, he said North Korea has a history of violating one agreement after another, and it would be foolish to trust them now. I, I wonder if you agree. No, I don't. And uh, our mainstream media, uh, including the paper of record, the New York Times, gets this stuff wrong all the time. Uh, the first major agreement uh, made in 1994 under Bill Clinton froze North Korea's plutonium, all of it, uh, for eight years under UN inspection. The whole facility was sealed, uh, closed-circuit cameras uh, uh, all over the place. So they had no plutonium until 2002. And under the prodding of Kim Dae-jung, the South Korean president who came in in 1998 and started the reconciliation with the North, uh, the Clinton administration moved to buy out North Korea's medium and long-range missiles. Uh, the, the general who ran the conglomerate making those missiles came to the White House in October 2000, uh, and Madeleine Albright uh, went to Pyongyang two weeks later to do this missile deal. Uh, but everybody's forgotten that because... Uh, the 2000 election ended up in the Supreme Court, and five people decided George Bush would be president. And Bush came in uh, and did everything he could to mess up uh, our agreements with North Korea. Uh, I don't have time to go into all the details, but John Bolton and Dick Cheney in particular were determined to uh, uh, not proceed with the missile deal uh, and to kill the uh, framework agreement that froze North Korea's plutonium. And the main reason they did this was that North Korea is not a threat to the United States, uh, certainly not then, uh, but it's a very useful foil for China, which Cheney and Bush and the others, of course, saw as a looming threat. 
Uh, so when North Korea blows off an atomic bomb or, or, or tests a missile, uh, we put more anti-missile batteries into the Far East. Uh, we try to weld together South Korea, Japan, and the U.S. in a tight alliance against China. Uh, and basically, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un and, and his father, Kim Jong-il, uh, in the early, early 2000s were uh, a very nice foil for what the Bush administration wanted to do. And, of course, Bush put them into the axis of evil. Yeah, uh, I, I really don't blame the North Koreans for uh, moving in the direction that they did after 2002 because they were in the crosshairs uh, of the preemptive doctrine if, uh, if the Iraq war had gone to a quick conclusion. So North Korea has said it will abandon its nuclear weapons in exchange for uh, an agreement with the United States that we will not invade. Seems like a great idea, but how do we get from here to there? What are the first steps? Well, when uh, General Cho, the fellow who ran their missile conglomerate, came to Washington in 2000, he signed an agreement with President Clinton that neither side, neither North Korea nor the United States, would have hostile intent toward the other. Uh, this was a solemn diplomatic agreement, uh, very much like what North Korea appears to want again uh, in 2018. And uh, the Bush people acted as if uh, it had never been signed, never been even written. I, I remember reading the North Korean press at the time, and they said, how is it that people can just tear up diplomatic agreements like that? Uh, I'm not, of course, suggesting that North Korea is faultless in all this, quite, quite the contrary, but the fact is we already signed an agreement uh, saying that we would not have hostile intent toward North Korea, which implies that we're not going to invade it or try to overthrow the regime. Right. Uh, I don't know what I'm skeptical about is what kind of an agreement we could give North Korea, what kind of a statement we could give them uh, that would convince them that we're sincere about it this time. I imagine it would have to come in the context of uh, diplomatic relations finally being opened uh, between Pyongyang and Washington, and guarantees uh, both by South Korea and the U.S. that that they would not try regime change uh, or or to invade the North. Well, we don't have much time left here, but I, I wanted I wanted to ask. Uh, how much can be accomplished by South Korea working with North Korea, and how much has to be the work of the United States and, I guess, China? Well, certainly China has to be a part of uh, ending the war in Korea and getting a peace agreement since it signed um, the armistice agreement, and South Korea didn't. Uh, there are only three signatories, China, the U.S., and North Korea. Uh, but I, I think that a real tension exists, uh, more hidden now than open, between Seoul and Washington. Uh, Moon Jae-in is very committed to moving forward quickly uh, to reconcile with North Korea and help rebuild their economy, uh, get rid of their nukes, and so on. And uh, I, I think, uh, generally speaking, the foreign policy establishment in Washington agrees with John Bolton, who said that North, uh, South Korea is like putty in the hands of the North Koreans. Yeah. They think the South Koreans are rushing forward uh, too quickly. Uh, a former high State Department official in the Obama administration said they're running off the 
the bridge or off the cliff like lemmings. Uh, That's a a kind of hidden aspect of this, and I think it's probably going to become prominent uh, unless uh, Donald Trump uh, uh, somehow uh, turns into a big supporter of uh, President Moon. Last question. If we get a treaty ending the Korean War, would you support giving Donald Trump the Nobel Peace Prize? No, I, I think uh, it would be much better to give uh, the Peace Prize to uh, President Moon and President Kim, or Chairman Kim. Uh, the North and South Koreans are doing much more uh, to move this uh, peace process forward than Trump is. I mean, he was just a few months ago screaming that he was going to totally destroy North Korea. Uh, I, I, da- I actually don't think Trump has the slightest idea of uh, the nature of the Korean conflict, uh, how deep it, it, it has run, how long it has been going on. I'll just say this, if he gets the Nobel Peace Prize, then anything is possible. <laughs> okay. Bruce Cummings. Bruce, thanks so much for talking with us today. Nice talking to you, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump's greatest vulnerability, it may not be Russiagate, but rather his financial crimes. And for that, we turn to David K. Johnston. He's an award-winning investigative journalist who's followed Trump for nearly 30 years. He won a Pulitzer Prize at the New York Times. Now he's editor-in-chief of dcreport.org. He also writes for The Nation and other publications, and he's a frequent guest on MSNBC. His books include The Making of Donald Trump, and more recently, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. It's just published by Simon & Schuster. I spoke with him last week in Los Angeles. Some people have been saying that what will bring Trump down is not the political crimes around the Trump campaign's involvement with Russian collusion, not the constitutional issues around the travel ban, not even the obstruction of justice around firing the head of the FBI. What will bring him down is the criminal issues, especially the financial issues, the money issues, and that the FBI raid on Michael Cohen's office and homes is the key to all this. You know more about Trump's criminal and financial offenses than anybody except for Michael Cohen. What do you think about this argument? Well, first of all, the idea that Donald Trump is going to be impeached is just a fantasy, barring something we haven't seen that's totally unexpected. Because it takes two-thirds of the Senate, 67 members, to convict upon impeachment, which is only a charge. And it would require more than a dozen Republicans. And as you've seen, the Republicans have no interest in this whatsoever. Now, Trump is uh, very vulnerable on a whole host of criminal issues. He is the third generation head of a crime family. His grandfather was a draft dodger from Germany who lied to get his US citizenship and who made his fortune running whorehouses. He was a pimp out in Washington State and the Yukon Territory. His father had a business partner named Willie Tomasello, who was a front for 
the Gambino and Genovese crime families, the two biggest mafia families in New York, and who ripped off taxpayers and engaged in all sorts of corrupt behavior. But, you know, Donald Trump, uh, for example, was deeply entangled with a major international cocaine trafficker who lives in Santa Monica named Joe Exelbaum when he was a casino owner. It should have cost him his casino license. He's coated in Teflon. If people thought Ronald Reagan was coated in Teflon, this, this guy's got six more layers of it. He's vulnerable on these issues, and Robert Mueller and the team he's assembled are as good as it gets when it comes to being prosecutors. But we also have a Justice Department regulation that you cannot indict a sitting president. The Constitution doesn't prohibit it, but a Justice Department regulation does. One thing we may see is Trump as an unindicted co-conspirator. And a question people should think about is, if Donald Trump takes the Fifth Amendment when he is yes. questioned by a grand jury, Will that be accepted by the Republicans? Because if it is, that's the end of the rule of law in this country. You cannot, as President of the United States, take the Fifth Amendment to avoid self-incrimination, or you shouldn't be able to. As a matter of law, you're entitled to, but you should have to resign as President because, as Donald Trump himself said, if you take the Fifth Amendment, in his view, you've admitted you've committed a crime. Now, it's not true that taking the Fifth Amendment means you've committed a crime. But since Trump set that as his standard, then he will have admitted he's a criminal. So let's look at the raid on Michael Cohen and how much the FBI can learn. First of all, in order to get into a lawyer's office, you have to meet a very high standard. What do you think the FBI lawyers told the federal judge they expected to find there? Executing a search warrant against any lawyer, some two-bit lawyer in Temecula or East Texas, is going to be reviewed by the Attorney General, or in this case, the Deputy Attorney General, because Attorney General Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions has recused himself from Russia matters. In this case, the prosecutors could not run the risk that they would encounter a magistrate who would decline to issue the search warrant. So they, I'm sure, when we see the search warrant affidavits and other materials, we will find out that Michael Cohen was being tailed, that they had photographs of him going in and out of meetings. They may well have had intercepts of his telephone conversations and intercepts of his emails. They probably have emails from people he was in communication with. They have people whose names we haven't heard who could be secretaries or clerks. Uh, uh, who have provided information. But they went into whatever magistrate approved this search warrant with such a compelling and overwhelming case that the most troglodyte, pro-Trump, hate law enforcement magistrate in America had to say, yes, here is your search warrant. And by the way, Donald Trump, you know, described this to the public as they busted down the doors in the middle of the night. Absolute lie, typical of Donald, who lies as easily as you and I breathe. Michael Cohen himself said they knocked on the door, they were polite, they were very professional. Well, the speculation that I have seen focused on the payment of $130,000 to Stormy Daniels and questions about where did this money come from? Is it the campaign funds? Is it Trump's money? What's the criminal issue here? Well, there are a bunch of issues that arise here. First of all, uh, let me go to the agreement that attorney Michael Cohen, who literally went to the worst accredited law school in America, the absolute <laughs> bottom of the pile accredited law school, uh, he drafted this agreement. 
I'm not a lawyer, but I taught at a law school for eight and a half years to third-year law students. It is one of the worst drafted agreements I've ever seen in my life. I've drafted non-disclosure agreements for people I've hired. It brings up all sorts of irrelevant material. It talks about not disclosing any other children Donald Trump has or abortions he may have paid for. Now, that suggests that what Cohen did was he took a boilerplate agreement or an agreement he had used with another woman and remember, Steve Bannon has said there are hundreds of women. And no we, Donald? We think that was probably hyperbole. I don't think that was probably hyperbole. <laughs> okay. Uh, knowing Donald as I have for 30 years, there are many, many other women out there. Mm. And this distinctly raises the question of did Donald Trump at some point pay for an abortion? As we saw the number two Republican National Committee fundraiser did in a deal Michael Cohen brokered and the woman who was pregnant, a former uh, Playboy model, got over a million dollars. I wonder what the uh, you know, pro-life community will do. Uh, I take it back. I know what they're going to do. If it comes out Donald paid for an abortion or abortions, well, that was then, and Donald has repented, and, and he has seen the error of his ways, and he has asked God for forgiveness, and they'll ignore the fact that Donald Trump, when asked uh, what you've asked God for forgiveness for, said, I've never asked God for forgiveness. Why would I do that? I've never done anything that required forgiveness. Now, to go back to the legal issues that you yes. raised. <laughs> well, first of all, there's a can obvious, the obvious one is a campaign finance violation. If this money was paid a few days before the election to prevent the issue from coming up, that's a campaign finance violation. Unfortunately, the Federal Election Commission is a useless organization with no backbone. Secondly, there may well be a gift tax crime, which I have reported on. Cannot give someone else money of more than, at the time of this uh, uh, settlement, $15,000 a year. Uh, so if it was Melania participating, $30,000, <laughs> without filing a gift tax return. And while there is an agreement on the cover here uh, that they were really settling litigation, that's pretty dubious. Thirdly, if this was done to cover up a crime, this could be an act in the furtherance of a conspiracy. And remember, under American law, conspirators don't have to ever even meet one another. All they have to do is take one single action that advances the crime and not renounce. Where the money came from is another interesting issue. Just before we started speaking, Michael Cohen indicated to reporters through his spokesman that he would take the Fifth Amendment on any and all questions regarding Stormy Daniels and payoffs. Well, that raises a another question here. Will Donald Trump, who is the client, waive attorney-client privilege? After all, if nothing wrong was done, why wouldn't he waive attorney-client privilege and say, come look at the records? On the other hand, if he won't waive attorney-client privilege, and he's indicated he's very upset that his lawyer's office was raided, what does Donald Trump have to hide? The most likely explanation for the payment and the agreement is that at some point, Donald Trump created a slush fund to pay off women. He put Michael Cohen in control of it as his lawyer and basically said, I don't want to hear about this stuff, just get rid of them. That's what we're most likely to find out at the end of the day. Now, assuming that the speculation is right, that the uh, search warrant was based on investigating all of these issues around the $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels, if the FBI finds evidence of other crimes while they are collecting that material, that's also open to investigation and prosecution, isn't it? The charge given to Robert Mueller 
as special prosecutor was to investigate matters involving Russia and interference in the 2016 elections and the pursuit of any other crimes uncovered in the course of that. This is common practice and often investigation A leads to investigation B. Uh, Monica Lewinsky was not the original uh, or, uh, subject of uh, the salacious uh, uh, independent counsel stars pr uh, pursuit of, Donald, of, uh, of um, Bill, Bill Clinton when he was president. So uh, in this case, however, Mueller's team felt that they should be out of this case because it was not at all connected to the Russians. So they go to Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general who's overseeing this. Rosenstein takes it to the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of Manhattan. Uh, there, the uh, acting U.S. attorney, a former law partner of Rudy Giuliani, recuses himself. He removes himself from the case. So does his deputy because he came from the same law firm. So then career prosecutors from the public corruption unit pursued this case. And uh, we've seen today, just a few hours ago, that Attorney General Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions uh, now says that he is not, in his view, recused from participating in the Cohen investigation. Well, excuse me, uh, this is uh, the uh, Cohen is the lawyer for the man who appointed you Attorney General. Uh, that'll be an interesting thing to pursue and see what happens. Uh, but in any event, there will be other investigations that will grow out of this. There's one other significant issue here. Cohen is facing a civil suit over the Stephanie Clifford, uh, uh, a.k.a. Stormy Daniels case. He is facing this criminal investigation, and there's, a, I would say, a high likelihood that it will lead to a tax charge. And it could also lead to a criminal tax charge from the state of New York. You know, let me make this a question. Yeah. Okay. You know more about uh, tax law than a lot of people, and you certainly know more about Trump's taxes than a lot of people. I've heard you say on MSNBC that twice before, Trump has faced tax charges, which I didn't know about. Uh, let's just go back a step. What's Trump's history with the IRS, and, and where do we stand? What's the potential exposure right now? Well, Donald Trump confessed in the early 80s to sales tax cheating in New York, and Mayor Ed Koch said he should spend 15 days in jail for it, although he didn't name him. Uh, and that was after that that, of course, Donald Trump began saying Ed Koch was the worst mayor anybody ever met. Donald had two civil trials, not criminal trials, for tax fraud. He lost both of them. He reported on his 1984 uh, city, uh, city, state, and we know federal because under New York law, New York state return and federal return are virtually identical, that he had a consulting business with no revenue but $600,000 of expenses. He had no receipts, no documents, nothing to back it up. So, of course, he lost those, and he got very tough opinions from judges about his conduct. Donald Trump has gone to extraordinary lengths that I detail in my book, The Making of Donald Trump, that came out in 2016, to hide from auditors records so that he could rip off the New York City government for several million dollars a year. I mean, really incredible series of steps, and I go through every one of them. Uh, Donald Trump is a cheat. You know, we know that he cheats on his wife. We know that he cheats on workers he won't pay. We know that he cheats on vendors. Anybody who thinks he doesn't cheat on his taxes just hasn't thought it through. But we have so severely cut the Internal Revenue Service budget
that we're not auditing people with very, very complicated tax returns. And furthermore, there is a very strong tendency when you are wealthy and have connections to the right lawyers to turn these things into civil matters where you just pay a penalty and promise not to commit the crime you were committing without a criminal charge. And that's in like all likelihood what happened here, which brings us back to Cohen. Michael Cohen uh, married uh, a woman whose ethnic background is Ukrainian, whose father is deeply involved in the very corrupt taxi medallion business, which I did a big project on in the New York Times 20 years ago, and who is part of this massive uh, collection of Russian criminals and criminal associates in New York. And to give you an idea of how important that group is, uh, many times courts will seal the records in a case. In the entire United States, um, I believe that there are 95 double sealed records. That is, there is no record of a criminal case at all uh, that's in the public file. If you went to look at what's called the docket sheets, you wouldn't see it. Um, based on litigation that uh, DC Report, the news service I found it has been involved in, we believe that 75 of the 95 double sealed cases in the United States are in U.S. District Court in Brooklyn. Hmm. The only logical explanation for that is that Russian mobsters have been making national security deals, let us out of our crime or reduce the punishment for our crime and we will help you in the area of national security and indeed Donald Trump's longtime associate traveling companion, whom he says I wouldn't recognize him if he was in the room, uh, Felix Sater, the son of a heavyweight Russian mobster, made exactly such a deal. We've been in court fighting to get the records made public, and we keep getting redacted sheets of paper, where we get a piece of paper, but all the information's been taken, uh, made invisible. And um, uh, his case was a double-sealed case where he ripped off people for $40 million with the cooperation of five mafia families, and he hasn't gone to prison because, according to the Justice Department, he helped intercept shoulder-held missiles that could be used to bring down uh, commercial jetliners. And let me point out that if what Loretta uh, Lynch, when she was the U.S. Attorney in Brooklyn, said is true, and I have no reason to think she wouldn't tell the truth, that means uh, how many degrees of separation are there between traffickers in Middle East terrorist weapons, and Donald Trump, one, Felix Sater. Donald Trump, Felix Sater, weapons traffickers. That's the kind of man who is sitting in the Oval Office. Well, that's a conversation stopper, but I do want to get back to the, so given his, the history of his tax, uh, what cheating. should we, cheating, uh, what is his current exposure? What are the FBI likely to find in Michael Flynn's office that might be relevant? Michael Cohen's office. What's the FBI likely to find in Michael Cohen's office that might be relevant? Well, we know from the drafting of the Stormy Daniels agreement that he's just not a very good lawyer. He's sloppy and doesn't do work like he should, as you would expect from someone who went to the worst accredited law school in America. <laughs> And so uh, they're likely to find evidence of tax fraud, of money laundering, of wire fraud, of mail fraud. You know, you use uh, wire bank transfers for a corrupt purpose, you've committed a felony. You send a letter in the mail to further a crime, you've committed a felony. And every time you send something, you've committed a felony. In some circumstances, not all, we have extended this to email. Wow. 
and other telecommunications. Well, as we should. I mean, what's that's just the modern version of the post office. Yeah. So uh, I think that the Cohen has substantial exposure probably for uh, tax crimes, mail fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy. Uh, I would expect the prosecutors will try to bring against him a racketeering charge. And if they can show that his law firm and maybe involving his father's father-in-law's business and some other things are a racketeering enterprise, they can dangle life in prison in front of him. And it's basically if you can deliver us uh, somebody bigger, uh, you'll get little to no prison time. And if you can't, um, you know, say goodbye to the rest of the world. By the way, uh, when the big Rudy Giuliani trials were brought 25 years ago and fat Tony Salerno, the head of the Gambino family, went to prison for life in a racketeering case, one of the specified charges was the purchase of concrete from a mob company owned by the heads of the Genovese and Gambino crime families. And fat Tony Salerno, one of those two guys, went to prison for life and died in prison uh, in part because of the concrete he sold to Donald Trump. David K. Johnston, his new book is It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. David, you're the best. Well, thank you very much. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.